if you'd stand with me for the preaching of God's, or for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is found in Mark 11, 1 through 11, and it says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage of Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? The Lord has need of it. Just say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray. God bless Pastor Brandon as he comes to preach this message to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, it's a familiar story from God's Word in Mark chapter 11. Um, I, I imagine that probably most, if not all of us, have heard of this story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem before. It's in all four of the gospel accounts. And with Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday quickly approaching in about a month, I think it's appropriate that we arrive right now after more than a year of time in Mark's gospel account to this particular passage and this shift that is occurring in Mark's writing, in the tone of this gospel, and in the events that are unfolding, and specifically in how Jesus is handling this entire ministry that he's navigating under the control of the Spirit and according to the will of the Father. So we're here at Mark 11, and Mark 11 marks, with this story of the triumphant entry, it marks the beginning of what we call Passion Week. Maybe you've heard about that week, Passion Week, or maybe you're not familiar. Maybe you know of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. This term, Passion Week, is a traditional name that we use in the church to describe the final week of Jesus' ministry on the earth. And Passion Week gets with Jesus' triumphant entry as he is into Jerusalem, mounted on this donkey. It's the story that we heard this morning that Pastor Britt just read to us. And we celebrate this particular event every year on Palm Sunday. But Passion Week continues with other significant events. And crucified on Good Friday. And then concludes, culminates with the grand climax as Jesus Christ raises from the dead on Easter Sunday. This is Passion Week. And to say that this is a significant week in the life of Jesus is, is really a gross understatement. This, I mean, that is, a, that is a small way to say how important this particular week is. We can see it through the types of stories that are all in this one week, a span of seven days. These stories all occur together. 
But there's some, another way we can see it's significant through the way that Mark writes his gospel account. Up to now, we've been through 10 chapters, Mark 1 through Mark 10. And in those 10 chapters, we've covered about three years from the ministry and life of Jesus. And now here we arrive, arrive in Mark chapter 11, and we would think, oh, well, then we're at the last week. If we covered three years in 10 chapters, then what, we get a chapter, maybe two for this last week? No, there's still a third of Mark's gospel account remaining. Two thirds given to the first three years, one entire third of Mark's gospel account given to the last week. Now that's a significant Week. So there is a lot to unpack here in this gospel account from Mark. And Mark's record of Passion Week starts with this very important event that we arrived at this morning, with the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, mounted on the colt of a donkey. Interesting. What an event to kick off Passion Week. And, and a little strange type of event, the crowds of people gathered along the sides of the road and all shouting, throwing their coats on the ground so a donkey can step on top of them, waving around palm branches and throwing those things on the ground as Jesus enters. What is this massive display that is going on here? Why is this event so significant? And why does it begin Mark's account of the events of Passion Week? Well, let's begin with the most obvious reason that this event is so significant. What took place in Mark 11, 1 through 11, at the beginning of Passion Week, occurred in fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. All right, let me say that a different way so it really lands home for us. Hundreds of years before this event, the story that you heard this morning from Mark 11 ever occurred, the prophet Zechariah foretold that this event would happen in this way at the arrival of the Messiah, at the arrival of the King. The prophet foretells of a people of Jerusalem rejoicing and shouting praise as their King, as the Christ, as their Messiah comes into Jerusalem not riding on a horse of victory, but riding humbly mounted on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 is where we can read this prophetic statement. And it says from the prophet, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now it's hard to imagine that these words were written by the prophet Zechariah approximately 550 years before the story of Mark 11 that Pastor Britt read for us this morning ever took place. Now as Americans, it's hard for us to appreciate 550 years. Okay, I'm gonna do, do the best we can. That's more than twice as old as our nation right now. 550 years from the time that this verse in Zechariah 9.9 was written by the prophet to the fulfillment of this passage in Jesus in Mark 11, 1 through 11. That is a significant event. But it's just the beginning of the significance of this event that unfolds to kick off Passion Week. When we step back a little more, 
and we look at the details and the circumstances surrounding this particular story, the importance of what God is doing just continues to swell. And we just continue to gain this appreciation for the activity of God and what he is doing. What this story reveals and what I hope you will walk away with, and I'm not gonna give you three or five or 10 points today. This message just has one big point that I want you to walk away with that I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning. And the message is this, that our God is the God of unstoppable power. And he is the God of undeniable goodness. And we can see these realities about God through these stories and the events that transpire because this particular story takes place. This story and its setting reveals God's ability to bring about precisely what he intends to bring about. It demonstrates his sovereignty over the affairs of people and that no amount of human interference can ever stop the plans of the Lord our God. It magnifies the goodness of God in the midst of an evil and broken world with all kinds of problems and trouble that he is God, he is in control, and he is good regardless of the circumstances of our lives. And if we will listen and have ears to hear this morning, this story reminds us that the same God who orchestrated the events of Passion Week is the God who is orchestrating the events that are happening in our world today and even orchestrating the details of your life. That's the message this morning. And the message is in this story and what is unfolding in Passion Week. So let's have ears to hear the message that God wants us to hear today. Now to understand this message and and how the triumphant entry and its events surrounding it proclaimed this message, we need to investigate the background and the circumstances that were happening at this particular moment surrounding the life of Jesus and his ministry. So you may recall as we've gone through Mark's gospel account or as you've read personally through gospel accounts, you might recall that Jesus had taken great lengths to keep a cap on who he was and on what God was doing. Can you remember some examples of that happening? Like for example, he would go and heal somebody and instead of saying, all right, now go tell everyone, he would say, don't tell anyone what I did for you. What a strange thing for him to do. He was keeping a seal on who he was and on what God was doing for a period of time as crowds would form because of his teachings and the miracles that he performed, Jesus would often withdraw from the crowd so that they would disperse. You're gaining all this momentum. You would think, oh, just keep meeting with those crowds and let's have more regular meetings and more regular healings and let's just grow this group. And Jesus would just disperse. And and because he dispersed, the crowds would disperse. And up to now, Jesus would not allow other people to openly identify who he was or to announce him as king publicly. One time in John's gospel account, you might recall, there was a crowd that was so overtaken by Jesus and what he had done for them and and the power they were seeing in him that they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. And instead of saying, okay, I am the king, I'll just step right into that. Jesus withdraws from that crowd and all that momentum just disperses. Because of Jesus' teaching, 
and because of his miracles, the crowds formed often around his ministry. But Jesus went to great lengths to conceal his identity and to keep a lid on this thing, to keep the crowds from gaining any kind of real momentum around his ministry until Mark 11, until the triumphant entry. Because here on the dawn of Passion Week, Jesus actually does two things that are outside of the characteristic of anything he had done previously in his ministry. And he knows that by doing these two things at this particular time, he's about to blow this operation wide open. That anything he had done previously to conceal his identity and to hold back the momentum of the crowd, that was over and things were about to take full steam so that in one week's time, the events of Passion Week would unfold exactly as God had planned for them to unfold. So what are these two things that Jesus does? Well, the two things is first, he performs a high profile miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he incites the crowds by riding in on, into Jerusalem on this donkey in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. So let's look at that first one. He performs this high profile miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead just before he entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. Now, Mark doesn't record this particular event of the resurrection of Lazarus, but we know its timing and location because it's all documented very well in the Gospel of John. And we know that in the Gospel of John, the resurrection of Lazarus by the power of God through Jesus is the event that precedes the triumphant entry. Why is that significant? Well, it's not significant that Jesus raised someone from the dead in sense that that was new. Obviously, that's always significant that Jesus raises someone from the dead. But in the sense that it was new, he had already done this before. At least a couple other times, Jesus had raised people from the dead. We have one of those accounts in Mark and, and some other accounts in, in other gospel um, writings. But the circumstances and timing around Lazarus', Lazarus resurrection, it was more high profile and it was unlike any of these other resurrections that preceded it. And I'll, I'll explain why. First, Lazarus had been dead four days. And he was a moderately well-known figure in this area where, he, where Jesus raised him from the dead. And being dead for four days accomplished a couple things. First of all, it gave time for word to spread. They didn't have Facebook where they just say, oh, Lazarus passed away. You know, they, they didn't do that. They had like word had to spread. Four days gave lots of time for word to spread to different people that Lazarus had died. But even more significantly is four days guaranteed that Lazarus was absolutely dead. There was no question in Jewish society or among anyone who just understands what happens when a person dies. You don't seal them in a tomb when they're sick, roll that tomb shut, and then they stay in there four days and then they come out alive and well. So everyone was convinced. In fact, Mary uh, and Martha, the, oh, the sisters of Lazarus, Jesus asked one of them and said, "Open, roll back that tombstone. And remember they said, you want us to really open that tomb? By now there will be a smell. Everyone was convinced that Lazarus was dead. So that's one thing that made this high profile. People were hearing and Lazarus was dead. Another thing that made this high profile was Jesus had never resurrected anyone from the dead in this area before. 
This is in Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the largest city in all of Israel. So the location where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead made it a higher profile miracle. But here's the icing on the cake. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead at the beginning of Passover week just a few days before Passover would occur. And you say, why is that important? Well, Passover was the largest holiday in all of Israel with more travelers coming to Jerusalem at that time of year than any other time of year. It's estimated that approximately 2.6 million people traveled and were part of the gathering in Jerusalem for Passover week. 2.6 million. I know that's another number that's hard for us, but I want two point. You think the interstates are getting busy around us at rush hour right now? Put 2.6 million people in this city and see what happens. I mean, they would be packed in the walls, spread out all over the countryside, traveling in and out at different times. This is the largest gathering and the biggest possible stage in all of Israel. And it's on this particular time that Jesus decides. He's gonna perform this high profile miracle and raise Lazarus from the dead. What what do you get if you put all this together? A high profile resurrection occurring in a highly populated area during its peak season. Now tell me that Jesus isn't taking the cap off this whole thing, that he's not blowing this thing wide open. He is done. Gone are the days that Jesus is telling people to be quiet about what he was doing. It's safe to say that those attempts were well behind him. His fame and his popularity had already spread throughout Israel because you don't do the kinds of miracles he was doing and teach the kinds of things he was teaching without your fame growing in spite of his decisions to tell people to keep it silent. But now, on this week of Passover, people would arrive, travelers from all over, and they would hear this story of how Jesus raised a man from death to life, and then it happened in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Well, if you were traveling from a long distance in Israel to Jerusalem, and then you arrive and you hear this story, what would you do? Well, undoubtedly, many of these travelers walked the easy two miles over to Bethany because maybe they would see Jesus or maybe they'd get to talk to Lazarus or if nothing else, they could just hear from a firsthand eyewitness what God had done. So at the start of Passover week, Jesus takes the cap off first in his ministry through this high profile miracle that is sure to spread his fame throughout all the crowds that were gathering for Passion Week. And then right after that miracle, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And the prophecy is fulfilled because anyone can ride into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives into the gate uh, on the back of a donkey. It's not hard to fulfill that prophecy. What's impressive is Jerusalem shouts the praises of God as Jesus enters into that city. Large crowds line the street and they begin to take off their outer garments and throw it on the ground and wave palm branches as a sign of victory and throw it on the ground, effectively putting out the red carpet for the arrival of Jesus as he fulfills this prophecy to the letter, shouting out their praise as he enters. Before now, Jesus had never allowed any large crowd to openly proclaim him as Messiah and King. But now at the start of Passion Week, Jesus allows this massive demonstration of public admiration. What is going on here? Like 
this shift is so stark. He goes from everything being more silent and keeping it on the down low to just everybody can know and these open demonstrations of public affection. What's going on? Why is this happening? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. God was orchestrating everything so that his divine timeline for Passion Week would be carried out exactly as he planned, exactly as he had predetermined before even the foundations of the world. You say, how's that? How do you know that that's what God was doing? Well, there's one more factor to this story that we need to consider. And here's the last detail. Jesus had enemies. Jesus had people who wanted him dead. Jesus was already considered to be a significant threat to the Pharisees and the religious leaders before any of these Passover events like the resurrection of Lazarus and the triumphal entry ever occurred. I tried to think about how do we put this threat level into a modern vernacular? And I thought about the DEFCON system. And I think we have a graphic for that that you could put up. This DEFCON system we use in America, heightening the threat level, you know, whenever uh, we're being threatened by foreign activities. And, you know, leading up to Passion Week, I thought, well, Jesus is probably like at DEFCON 3. You know, they know that Jesus is a threat. They know that they're going to have to deal with Jesus. This, this issue cannot go unaddressed, but it's Passover week. It's the biggest holiday of the entire year. The logistics and the organization required to pull this week off, I mean, it, it consumed the time of these religious leaders. It had to be their great focus. On a week like that, there's no way that they would have ever moved the timeline up and on Passover decided to crucify Jesus but God had a plan that Jesus would be crucified on Passover. So on a week like that, if anything could wait, it would wait. And Jesus entering Jerusalem before he ever gets on that donkey or raises Lazarus, he's kind of entering that area like they're aware of that guy. We know what's going on with him. We're keeping an eye on him, but we'll get Passover behind us and deal with that later. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the Pharisees saw how the people responded, to that high profile miracle, oh, DEFCON 2, raise the alert, right? We're, we're, this threat is, is growing. In fact, do you recall how the Pharisees responded when they heard about the resurrection of Lazarus? I mean, if you had a heart that was soft towards God and you heard about resurrection power, bringing people out of the grave, wouldn't your heart be like, I wanna know what God's doing? But that wasn't the heart of these religious leaders at all. In John, John records in his gospel that the Pharisees' response to this was, let's not just kill Jesus, let's also kill Lazarus. We gotta find a way to put a stop to all these stories being told by all these different people. DEFCON 2. And then on the biggest stage possible. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And the Pharisees watched as the people that they were leading lined the streets and gave their admiration and praise as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Oh, DEFCON 1. This cannot wait any longer. We can't wait till the Passover week is over. We've got to take action right now. The Pharisees 
already hated Jesus because his teaching had correctly exposed on multiple occasions their hypocrisy and had undermined their authority because they had incorrectly interpreted the word of God and were misleading people. The Pharisees, many of them were power grabbers and they thought that they were losing power to Jesus. Through Lazarus healing and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the threat of Jesus became so intense that they believed that they had to act right now, regardless of the demands of Passover week. That's how they saw these events unfolding from their perspective. But from God's perspective, everything was happening under his sovereign control, just as he had planned. He was divinely orchestrating the affairs of people to carry out his plan to perfection, regardless of the interference or activity of any outside source. God planned for Jesus to fulfill all the prophecies related to him being the suffering servant who would enter Jerusalem, become the Passover land, die for the sins of the world and be raised again and ascend on high. He planned for Jesus to, uh, to fulfill all of those prophecies to the letter on this particular time, including this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. From God's perspective, God planned on Jesus' fame and notoriety um, reaching its peak during this of all Passover weeks, this particular fateful Passover week. God planned for Jesus' sacrifice to be made on Passover day, not the day before, not the day after. God planned that Jesus would become the Passover lamb who would die on the cross to atone for the sins of the world. And his plan was that it would happen on Passover. God planned to take what Satan and what others meant for evil and the evil and wicked deeds that they performed and to turn them for the good of all people of the world and for the good of Jesus. Even as we saw last week in Philippians 2, that because he became the suffering servant of all, God has elevated him higher above any name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God planned all this would occur before the foundations of the world, before there was ever a Passover, before there was ever a nation of Israel, before the promises had ever been given, before the prophecies had ever been spoken, before Jesus ever arrived on this donkey. God planned that it would all happen and he was demonstrating through this event, I'm in control. There is nothing outside my control. I will bring about exactly what I intend to bring about despite the interference or efforts of any person, any human involvement. Just think about it. Here are the Pharisees working around the clock, scheming to put a stop to what Jesus is doing. And in reality, God is using their scheming and their planning, and he is using all that to orchestrate everything so that their plans and their scheming just add to the glory of God and his power and significance through this event. Ultimately, their planning to kill Jesus and raising his threat to DEFCON 1, it led to the execution of Jesus on Passover day. Now, if you would have paused and told those Pharisees who were trying to lower the threat and lower his notoriety at that time, you realize if you kill him on Passover day, everyone's gonna see it, say he's the Passover lamb of God. They would go, oh, oh, we can't do that then. We gotta do it the day before or day after. No human interference. 
is going to deter the plans of God and what he has decided to do. Listen, church, that's unstoppable power. Unstoppable is the power of our God. To call their efforts to try to stop God's activity through Jesus a speed bump would be giving those efforts way too much dignity. If anything, the efforts of the Pharisees to stop God's activity was just used by God to add momentum to what God was doing and to make his works even more glorious and to demonstrate his power on an even grander scale. Our God is sovereign. He is the God who rules and reigns supremely over every event and over all the affairs in all the world and over the affairs of every single person alive now, anyone who has lived and anyone who will live. And because our God is perfect love and entirely good, then he is a God who is able to take the most wicked, the most evil the most painful things caused by the sin of people in this world and use them to reveal his love and to work out his salvation for all. Now that's undeniable goodness. Our God is the God of unstoppable power and undeniable goodness. Let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? Let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? I hope that you do. Let me tell you how you know. Let me tell you how you can know if you believe that this is true about God. It's easy to say the word, but do I really believe it? Well, when you look around at the events that are unfolding in this world, what do you see? Do you see a world out of control? Are you motivated by fear or prompted to fear? Or do you see that, all God's word has foretold is coming about to once again set the stage for his unstoppable power to be revealed on the grandest of all stages and his perfect plan to be executed with flawless precision. Which one do you see? A world in chaos and out of control or a God who is orchestrating all the details to execute his plan flawlessly and with great precision? Or how about we get more personal? When you look at the details, the circumstances, the experiences of your life, are you overwhelmed by the hardships, the evil, the struggles, the trauma, and the suffering? Or do you believe that you serve an undeniably good God who is sovereignly orchestrating every event and every detail in your life to accomplish his very best in you for his good and his glory to be accomplished through you. What do you believe? Whether or not we believe this truth can be determined by examining our worldview and how we perceive the events going on in our life. What you believe will inform your worldview both in how you interpret the events going on in this world and how you interpret the details of what is unfolding in your life. Now I'll be among the first to acknowledge that when we're in the moment and stuff gets hard, the pain and suffering we experience in this life can be overwhelming. I'm sure you can relate. 
And if I was left up to my feelings alone, I am sure I would not have any kind of great confidence in the unstoppable power of our God and his undeniable goodness. But thankfully, God hasn't left it up to my feelings alone. If not for the example of Jesus, it would be all too easy to assume that our suffering and the evil we experience in this world are indicators that God has vacated his throne. He has lost control or he is not good in the midst of the details of our lives. But because of the example of Jesus, specifically his example on this most important of all Passover weeks, we can look past our feelings and we can see his power and goodness despite the wickedness of people and the evil that exists in this world. If he didn't spare his only son, he's demonstrated to us what he is like even when things grow dark around us. I mean, I want you to consider for just a moment, as bad as anything any person in this room has ever experienced, I want you to consider for just a moment the evil that Jesus endured on this Passover week. And that he endured this evil while God was simultaneously orchestrating his very best for Jesus and for all the people of the world through these events. Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his closest friends. In his most desperate hour ever, all of his closest friends abandoned him. The trial that Jesus endured was nothing short of a kangaroo court that was never interested in any justice at all, but was only interested in his brutal execution. Jesus endured public humiliation that would have been excessive for even the worst public offenders of his day. They took it beyond what they would have taken beyond murders and other people that they were executing in that way. Jesus' mother Mary had to watch as her son was beaten beyond recognition and publicly executed. And Jesus endured all of this, and this is the most, the greatest atrocity. Jesus endured all this, even though he was the perfect lamb of God, who had never done anything except execute love to perfection and had never sinned once. It made it the greatest display of depravity, the greatest injustice that this world has ever known. It's the most evil thing that has ever occurred was this event. And you can look at this story one of two ways. You can either say, see, look how God loses control. He can't even protect his own son. Look at how evil prevailed in the life of Jesus. Or, You can say, in the midst of great darkness, among the greatest evils that have ever occurred, not only was God present, but he was orchestrating every detail, divinely and sovereignly executing his plan to perfection, revealing his unstoppable power and his undeniable goodness towards all. What's your worldview? How do you see it? How do you see it? That's the question that will reveal 
what you truly believe. Because if this can be true in the life of Jesus, if it's through the greatest suffering this world has ever known, that God accomplished the greatest good that this world has ever known, then it must be true in your life that no suffering is wasted that there is no experience that you go through that God is not more powerful than that experience and cannot use it to reveal to you his grandness, his goodness, and his undeniable love toward you. How do you see it? This is how God sees it. Just listen to his word. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His life was not taken from him, He gave his life and laid it down. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, those who sought his life, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Jesus endured, oh, make no mistake about it, it was nothing short of evil. But what God did through his suffering is nothing short of unstoppable power and undeniable goodness. Do you believe that this is true? And very, very personally for you, do you believe that this is true in your life? in the circumstances of our world right now and in the details of the events unfolding in your life. God's word says that it is true. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe this in your own life? What, how you answer that question is gonna determine your worldview. And it's gonna determine the way you navigate what you experience in this world. Do you believe that according to God's divine power, his all-knowing wisdom and his undeniable goodness, that he is presently orchestrating the details of your life to bring about your very best despite the evil and brokenness we experience in this world? That's the only agenda of this one-point sermon is to get you to believe that truth to see these, this whole deal from God's perspective, to train your soul so that your soul trusts in God and looks for his activity in every detail of your life. And I, I promise you this, believing this truth will change your perspective. You won't be able to go through anything else in this life. You won't face any hardships or trials that this worldview, if you truly embrace it, won't radically transform the way you interpret the details and what's happening around you. It will definitely change your perspective. But let me also say, it won't always make things clear in the moment. Like right now we see dimly as in a mirror, uh, there is a spiritual realm and there is a physical realm. 
And sometimes right in the moment, you're gonna look at the details of your life and you're gonna say, this doesn't make any sense. Sometimes when we're in the midst of chaos, it will be hard for us to personally see the evidence of the unstoppable power of God and his undeniable goodness. It's hard to see it when someone we love is suffering, when someone we love is ill, or when we're suffering and our health is failing. It's hard to see it when we experience deep loss, severe grief or pain. It's hard to see it when something evil or traumatic happens to us. It's hard to see it when we're overwhelmed by the burdens and worries of this world. Just like us, the disciples of Jesus had to feel confusion at the beginning and all throughout of this most fateful of Passover weeks. I mean, what a roller coaster for their emotions. Just consider what they went through. Jesus was constantly being adored on one hand and hated on the other, praised on one hand and accused on the other, celebrated and threatened. Try as they might, there's no way that they could have understood the depths of what God was orchestrating and bringing about when they were in that moment. But you know what? That's okay. It's okay that they didn't get it in that moment. Jesus treated them like it was okay. Even in this story in the triumphant entry, we see how God relates to those who don't fully understand, but who are, whose hearts are willing to trust him. I mean, remember the story. What do we see Jesus do? Remember how he like, yeah, he's put on that earth suit and he, he is fully divine and fully man. And he's that divinity's veiled in human flesh. And so often he just operated in that human flesh. But what do we see in this story? He just reminds us all that he's still the second person of the Godhead. Whenever he announces divinely that without going and scouting out that town, hey, disciples, head over there, there's a donkey. It's tied up in this location. It's never been ridden on before and just take it and bring it to me. Oh, and I also know the heart of its owner because if you just say the Lord has need of it, he'll just send it with you. I mean, what kind of trust is that that is required on their part, right? I mean, Jesus led them to trust him in, in this situation. They had to depend on him and, and, and believe what he said. I mean, that'd be like someone coming over to me and say and just jumping in my car and trying to drive off. And then... I have my key in my hand and I say, what are you doing? And they say, oh, the Lord has need of your car. And I say, oh, okay, here's the key. I mean, it's, it's something like that, but they just went and did it. And that's, Jesus led them to obey, to trust him, that he had this divine power, that he was in control. He reminded them that by giving the location to the donkey. And then they just, he just led them to obey. Just go do what I said. You don't have to worry about what's unfolding. This isn't about you. I've got this under control. I'm gonna bring this about with or without your help, but you get to be a part of it. I've got a way to include you in it. Just go obey. And then Jesus leads them uh, and includes them and he leads them to surrender their lives to him, to practice radical generosity. I think how cool is it that the owner of that donkey gets a mention in the gospel accounts? We don't even know his name, but forever recorded because of his generosity that when the disciples said, the Lord have need of it, he just said, and take it. What a cool response to God's activity. You know, God didn't need that guy to give him his donkey. I mean, Jesus is the one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things exist. He is the word who was with God in the beginning and is God. And it was through the word of God that all things were created. Jesus could have just said donkey and a donkey would have been there. He didn't need to include these disciples in that. What's he doing? He's recognizing in the midst of this chaos, things that you can't understand. You can't see the whole picture right now. I'm still gonna include you. You can trust me. Just obey me. 
Just walk with me, surrender to me, and you get to be part of this story. Now, if that's not glory, I don't know what is. Jesus still understands when we're in chaos and we don't know how to navigate it, and he will still guide us. What should we do when we feel like our lives are falling apart? How should you respond to the challenges that you face? Well, you should do what Jesus led his disciples to do in this story. You should just trust God. Trust that he's got these details covered. He's orchestrating his best in your life. You should obey God. Just say, I'll do what you ask me to do. And you should surrender to God. And just say, Lord, however you want to use me and my life, you can use it for your glory. You only have grace to respond like this if you believe in God's unstoppable power and God's undeniable goodness. Aren't you glad that we don't have to trust our feelings in the circumstances of this life? Aren't you glad that we get to see divinity in human flesh physically so that we can see with our own eyes how God can use evil and wickedness to bring about the very best for us and for others in this world? I'm grateful that we have Jesus, amen? So what challenges are you facing right now? I know you gotta have them. It's hard. What suffering are you enduring? What evils have you experienced that have cost you greatly? What pain are you carrying with you right now? Would you bow with me in prayer? because trust is where this starts. And I'm gonna lead you in just a physical expression of a spiritual reality that the Lord wants to bring about in your heart. Would you take your fist right now and just clench it? And if you've got a lot of pain, maybe clench too. (laughs) Things are real hard right now. And would you just imagine in your soul that that tightening of your Fist is the tension that you're experiencing in your struggle with whatever you're facing right now. Whatever circumstances have caused doubt or confusion, whatever pain you're enduring. And would you just leave your fist clenched for a moment for as long as the Lord has you leave it clenched. And in this time of worship, and I told you at the beginning, I think singing is gonna really be beneficial to our souls after this message. And the songs we're gonna sing are right in alignment with this truth God has for us. As we sing, as you allow your soul to just trust the Lord, to express your confidence in his unstoppable power in the events of your life. As you allow yourself to proclaim his undeniable goodness as a physical response to what's happening in your soul, as that happens in you, would you just release that fist and just soften it before the Lord and just say, Lord, you can have it all. I may not get it, it may not be clear, there may be parts of this I don't understand, 
but I trust you with it all. As we begin to sing, I'm gonna ask you just to remain seated for this beginning and just give you a moment right now to do business with the Lord. And as the Lord prompts you, release that fist. You can even stand and worship and sing just as the Lord leads you personally. And I want to let you know that this altar is open to you during this time of worship. Sometimes we need just that physical response of coming and just at the feet of the altar saying, Lord, you can have it all. So you respond as the Lord leads you. And let's focus our souls on the unstoppable power of God, despite the circumstances of our lives and on his undeniable goodness. Pastor Seth, let's see. You worship as the Lord leads.
sing this out with us. All my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so. salvation of God. And I want to ask if uh, Jack and Mala, Pastor Jerry and Sandra, anyone else on our response team available, if you would just come here to the front, because as we continue to sing this morning, we don't want one person in this room to miss out on the opportunity to know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Because he entered in on that donkey knowing exactly that was what was going to happen to him that he would give his life on a cross, not because he sinned, but because of your sin and mine. And that through his death, God would make a way for all your sins to be forgiven. If you would just call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your dead sin-filled spirit would be resurrected to new life. And that invitation is your invitation this morning from God. And listen to me, he didn't stay in the grave. By the power of God, he was resurrected on Easter Sunday, demonstrating that he has power. He alone has power over sin and death. And then, do you know what he experienced? That wasn't his earthly coronation entering on that donkey, but shortly after, he experienced his heavenly coronation as king. Do you remember that the disciples watched him ascend through the clouds? And what does Hebrews say? That he ascended to sit where? At the right hand of the throne of God where he reigns sovereignly right now as King of kings and Lord of lords, fully supreme over all the affairs of men and all of the things that are happening in this world. And guess what? His earthly coronation is still ahead of us. 
The scripture says that Jesus Christ, in the same manner in which he ascended on high, will come again through the clouds with a shout of the archangel and the blast of the trumpet. And he will plant his feet back down on this earth, on that same Mount of Olives where he began his journey on that donkey. And when Jesus plants his feet on that mount, this time the mountain will split in two. And he will descend down the Kindred Valley and up through the eastern gates of Jerusalem. And he will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and experience the coronation as king of this world. And he will reign from that throne for a thousand years because he's deserved the right to rule and reign. And he will establish his kingdom on the earth in a new way. And that kingdom, oh, it will know no end. And he will be our God. We will be his people. And he will bring about the just judgment of both the dead and the living. And all those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ will be part of that kingdom forever. And we will rule and reign with him as king. That's the invitation of the gospel. Church, it's more than just the forgiveness of your sins. It's a new life in Christ. It's citizenship in the kingdom of God. It's life eternal and forever with our Lord that just like those disciples on that Palm Sunday are watching these events unfold and they're just, they're just in it, that it's really all about him, what is going on right now. And we're just in it. But in his sovereign will and according to his power and love, he's decided to include you. He's decided to include me. What a king we serve. So listen, if you don't know that king, if you haven't received the forgiveness of sin and a new life and a place in that kingdom, don't leave this place today until you nail that down. These at the front are here to receive you while we continue to sing. Just come and pray with them and just say, hey, I need to follow King Jesus. And today could be the day that you experience new life in him. So would you come right now and at any point as we sing, the altar's still open and these are ready to receive you. Come as the Lord leads you and let's lift our...